So now we come to the last uh, formal part before the Q&A, and that is actually uh, Mark Rosgrind is going to give us some reflections, I guess, on both of what he heard and how it relates to his work. And yeah, so please welcome Mark Rosgrind, the director of the Environment and Production Technology Division. Thanks so much. Uh, well, thanks very much, and you know, thanks especially for all my friends and colleagues uh, who, who spoke here. It's a, a tough act to follow, and all the friends and colleagues here in the audience as well. Um, especially thank uh, my family members here, my wife Susan, my son Michael, who took a bus from Boston to come down here to see me, and my sister uh, Anne and, and brother-in-law Tony, who also uh, surprised me driving down from Ann Arbor to for this. So really, extra surprise. You. So, I guess I'm going to reflect mostly, I guess, on a little bit on my career and and IFPRI, uh, but touching on some of the issues uh, uh, that we saw. Yeah, I think I'm going to take a little bit longer than my five-minute allotment, since that would only give me eight seconds per year I've been at IFPRI. So <laughs> that didn't seem quite fair. Um, but I won't ramble on too long. Well, first of all, I mean, contrary to popular belief, I did have a job after my PhD and before I joined IFPRI. So <laughs> the, from 1978 to 80, I, w I was an economist under a USAID project uh, in, in the Philippines, uh, posted in, in what was then the Department of Agriculture in the Philippines. Uh, uh, and it was really there that I learned like, the critical importance of working carefully with data, understanding when data makes sense and when it doesn't, uh, and also the excitement of operating within a fast-paced uh, uh, environment, working with the uh, policy analysis staff that was directly attached to the uh, Secretary of Agriculture then. So you know, I, I learned not only a lot about economics and economics, but I also learned that research and policy work can actually be fun. And th that's something I think we sometimes uh, don't manage to do. Uh, I, I first heard, heard about IFPRI actually when I was doing my PhD field research uh, and at, that was at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines uh, in, in Los Banos in 1976. At that time, two IFPRI staff uh, were visiting IFPRI, Erie, sorry. This was only about a year after IFPRI was established. Uh, so speaking to them, it really seemed like uh, the most thrilling job possible and I think it probably has been overall. Uh, and then a couple of years later, IFPRI uh, had an opening for someone that, that with expertise in water resources and irrigation, which I had done some work on for my dissertation. So I applied while still based in Manila at that job at the, sec uh, agri uh, the sec Department of Agriculture. Uh, and an ind indication how different many things were in those days. I was given an offer from IFPRI's director at that time, John Meller, without ever having spoken to him or having an interview. So. <laughs> I had some pretty good uh, recommendations, <laughs> so um, I made one attempt to negotiate the salary because I had also received a higher salary from, uh, from the U U.S. Department of Agriculture, ERS, at that time. So when I asked uh, uh, Telex John asking for higher uh, compensation, I received a really quick reply back, also by Telex. The offer stands as is, stop, take it or leave it, stop. <laughs> and I, I took it and uh, now I'm still here. <laughs> So uh, the, the IFPRI that I joined was, of course, really different from what it is today. Um, uh, when it first started uh, in 75, it had five uh, senior staff, about 12 short-term uh, consultant associates, and a support staff of 10, and a budget of $5 million over five years. Um, in, uh, it, 
by the time I joined, which is then in uh, 1980, uh, it, had it had grown some. Uh, we already had, at that point, uh, programs that sort of, in a sense, were the genesis of many of the current programs. There was a program on trends analysis, that one kind of disappeared over the year, but production investments, food consumption, distribution, and trade and food security. So uh, as you can see, a number, three of the four div research divisions here really had their genesis way back then. Um, they, the one that's evolved differently was the development strategies uh, division, which uh, uh, was first part, became part of the production division and of course evolved on its own uh, back in 2003. What I think when IFPRI started, it was not part of the CGIR uh, at all. There was a lot of controversies, uh, in fact, about IFPRI joining uh, the CGIR. Um, the, many of the senior people in the centers, as well as many donors, did not see the relevance of, of policy uh, institute uh, working uh, uh, with si basically scientific institutes. There was also uh, opposition to the fact that IFPRI was proposing to do a lot of work in trade policy. There was a suspicion that a Washington-based trade policy institute would favor U.S. policies against others, and that also uh, made, op uh, made opposition. But fortunately, the, by 79, yeah, the IFPRI was admitted into the CG five year, about five years after it started. Um, and from, at that point, the budget ballooned from $1.7 million in 79 all the way to $6.1 million in 84. So it was still a very small place uh, at that time. Uh, but then through the 1980s, uh, obviously, as we've all seen, IFRI grew uh, strongly in most years and, and incredibly rapidly other years to the very, very large and, uh, institution we are today. Uh, throughout, through the 1980s, uh, research on agriculture production uh, issues at IFRI uh, focused more on things like uh, what, is, what farm producer investment incentives can achieve growth and equity simultaneously, what relative weight should be given to different agricultural commodities in, uh, in the future, uh, what is the role of fertilizer policy and sources, of, and what are the sources of agricultural productivity growth? So you can, that was already a, a lot, thinking about some of the same things that we've been hearing about already today. At the same time, during, during that period, I think IFRI was relatively slow in recognizing the importance of environmental and sustainability issues in, in agricultural development. Um, the, the, what had been the production technology program was renamed the Environment and Production Technology Division in, in 1992. And even that came with a reluctance from many researchers who said that that emphasis would end up detracting from needed research on agriculture growth and, and, and production. So it really uh, has been an evolution. But then I think beginning when Peter Hazel was, uh, became director uh, of the division, uh, in about, I think, 92, and then uh, we started building strong prog stronger programs in, in environmental resources. I developed a, a strong a water resources program in the 90s with Ruth Meinsendick, Mark Svensson, and later uh, Claudia Ringler. Other good work was being done on poverty and the environment, and sustainable land management work was uh, initiated by John Pender and Ephraim in, in Konya uh, in the, in the mid-90s, too. Later on, there's excellent work on agricultural biodiversity. And then when, when I ended up succeeding Peter, who moved on to uh, become director of the Development Strategies and, and Governance Division, then I also put a lot more emphasis uh, on those kinds of issues. Uh, I think a really important breakthrough for us was when he initiated research on climate change and agriculture, in, in really just in 2008, and in the 10 years since, have built a very uh, strong program. 
think one key event I wanted to highlight because it really was a transitional event at IFRI was uh, when Pear Pinstrup Anderson uh, launched the 2020 vision for agriculture, food, and the environment. That was in, in 1993. So while, while the, the 2020 vision built on ongoing IFPRI research, uh, it, it play, placed much more uh, emphasis, first of all, on contentious or emerging issues, but also put a very heavy emphasis on communications uh, to decision makers, to media, and, and elsewhere. Uh, again, this actually ended up with some significant internal dissent at the time, with people uh, protesting sort of what was seen already as a, a move away from IFRI being a sort of straight research institute to a, a broader institute that would be more visible and relevant in, in food policy and food security debates. Um, and I think that was a, a key breakthrough when we went ahead with that, um, and uh, I think IFRI's uh, built on those gains uh, for, for the last couple of decades. This also coincidentally with 2020 vision was the start of the impact model that I, that I uh, started at that time with colleagues Mercy Sambilia and Nicostrato Paris, who, who developed that with me. Um, yeah, I actually thought when we did that, you know, we did it, we made a report for 2020 vision, presented the results. I thought that was it, you know, we, that was a once-off model and I'd go back to doing other kinds of research. But, you know, the demand was very high, as you can see, and then it just kept growing uh, after that. Uh, we had key developments. We're adding the water supply and demand models in uh, 1998 to 2000, and then adding climate change to the model as well. So, it ends up has had sort of a life of its own uh, under that. Um, and let me just say a few things about what I, I consider my kind of my favorite papers over the years that also, I think, contributed to some of the issues here. I mean, well, the first would be my paper in 19. 81 in the American Journal of uh, Agriculture Economics with Bob Hurt on impacts of credit policy and fertilizer subsidy in the Philippines. That was a pretty good paper, but for me, the main importance of that, it actually showed that I could publish in, in a good journal. I mean, it wasn't all clear to me at, at that point that I could. So another paper with, uh, with Jim Rumasat in 1985, also in AJE, was kind of a quirky paper, but I think it had real, really good lessons. This looked at uh, assess the effectiveness of Zola, which at that time was a highly touted nitrogen-fixing uh, algae for use in rice paddies, and was being pushed hard by the Philippine government uh, to replace chemical fertilizers. It sounded like a good idea. You take away the chemical fertilizers, you have a naturally producing uh, uh, algae that, uh, uh, organic, uh, that produces organic fertilizer. But we showed uh, that the labor costs of using a Zola uh, tending it, putting it in the patty and stuff were far too high to justify extension of the technology. So that, that paper not only started my long-term interest in, in innovative technologies, but also showed me the need for, to be very skeptical until the, the benefits of those technologies are, are assessed uh, through careful work. My, my paper with Hans Binswanger in 1994 on markets and tradable water rights uh, was the first attempt to make a case for tradable water rights in developing countries. And, you know, I think we made a great case, case for it. It's been wide, a right, widely read paper, but unfortunately has very little impact on the ground in, in, uh, in developing countries because there really is deep-seated opposition to, in developing countries to making water tradable or economic, economic good in any way. I still think, though, that that's a key to, to for one, for example, getting away from the grain fundamentalism that, that probably talked about by being able to price water so it's used more effectively in its highest value of uses. 
Bob already mentioned the paper that's also uh, on agricultural commercialization and, and diversification that, that we may have been too optimistic, but I think that paper also laid out a conceptual framework for diversification issues and commercialization that remains valid today and is, is still being used. My, in 1998, my paper with Faisal Casarino uh, and, again, Nicostrato Perez here, on output response to prices and public investment in agriculture in Indonesian crops was published in the Journal of Development Economics. And that one showed that the rapid agricultural growth in Indonesia in the 70s and 80s, that was really a miracle uh, country during those days, it was driven almost entirely by investments in agriculture research and extension and in irrigation not by pricing and fertilizer subsidies that were being used to distort uh, the ag sector there. So it made a clear case that it's productivity enhancing investments that were important, not distorting uh, food prices and, and fertilizer prices. In 2000, Peter Hazel and I published Transforming the Rural Asian Economy, the Unfinished Revolution. And that helped, that book was sponsored by the Asian Development Bank. It helped convince the bank for a number of years and to increase uh, uh, investment in the agriculture sector, which had been declining in the past. So I've always felt that was a, a very high impact one. Uh, my book was Ziming Kai and Sarah Klein in 2002 on world water and food to 2025, looked at alternative and long-term scenarios and drawing investment and policy implications for those uh, and showed the strong interrelationship between water scarcity policy and food security. And that, this has been my highest cited publication with 881 citations, so that one's been out there. Then finally, just mention one more. In 2017, I keep trying to come back to water markets, and, and I came back full circle in two papers uh, with Man Lee and Wenchao Zhu that demonstrated more formally, theoretically, and empirically that tradable water rights do provide uh, higher incomes to farmers than, than any other allocation mechanisms under any really plausible uh, shapes of of irrigation production and cost function. So I'm still trying. Let's, let's see if anything ever comes in. <laughs> but you know, these, our careers are not just about uh, research. And, and perhaps the most, one of the, certainly one of the most fulfilling parts of my career had been working with and mentoring young researchers, particularly in Asia, where I worked for many years. Uh, and I, I've had many relationships working with, with people from the time they were just out of their PhDs and their masters. Uh, on through many years of their career. And a lot of these, a lot of my colleagues have gone into very important positions, uh, you know, directors of research institutes or, or, or university faculties, uh, uh, head, uh, deputy ministers of agriculture or finance, and uh, the minister of national economic development in, in, uh, in the Philippines before. In one case, the vice president of Indonesia was, is an old, was an old colleague from mine, of mine. So that's, that kind of long-term uh, work has always been great. Um, I haven't really had a traditional like, long-term mentor that's helped me through my career, but I've instead been blessed with many superb mentors and collaborators at various points in my careers. Er the earliest on, Randy Barker, Bob Hurt, and Yujiro Hayami were uh, economists at Erie when I was doing my PhD research there, and I, I, I learned a tremendous amount from them. I also met Jim Rumaset actually while I was uh, doing my PhD work then, and he's uh, been a colleague and mentor for ever since really, and we wrote several very good papers together as well. Um, other key mentors at different important parts of my career were Hans Binswanger and, and Bob Evanson. 
think Bob was particularly important during a relatively low productivity part of my career. He helped me get back on, on track through some great work we did together, and I'll always be grateful for, to him. Also, of course, learned from great collaborators such as Prabhu, who we heard from, Jugun Huang here, Arsenio Barisakan, and of course, from all my uh, IFPRI colleagues here, even Stan Wood. So. <laughs> I've also been uniquely blessed and, and benefited by working for great bosses throughout my career, including John Miller, Perpinster Anderson, Rasudan Ahmed, who was my first division director, Joachim von Braun, Peter Hazel, who was then my, my other division director, and then, of course, Schengen Fan here in front. You know, from the time I started until now, I've been given tremendous freedom to develop my own work. And, uh, well, I didn't, wasn't supposed to do this. And more directly, the work of the, in, the, the division as well. And, and, you know, having that freedom to grow and, and take your own way while uh, contributing to the good of all is, is sort of the definition of a great career. And thank you, Schengen, and all the others. Um, yeah, you, uh, you've had supported me tremendously these last several years, and I, I'm always be grateful for that. Um, so I've already, I already thanked most of my family, also my daughter Melissa and, and San Joselito, who have been, always been extremely supportive and patient with huge demands of my time and the crazy travel schedules of this kind of uh, the work kind of work we do here at IFPRI. So thanks you all all very much, and it's not really going to be goodbye. I'll be hanging around, and I'll see you all around. I'm sure. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much for, I mean, very, very uh, great reflections, I guess, both on IFPRI, uh, reflections on IFPRI and on Mark's career. I think we've all learned a lot, so I learned a lot, certainly about the early years and how difficult it was to even join CGR for IFPRI. I knew there were issues with our trade policy research from the beginning, and I guess those issues probably will never go away.